Hello, I'm Harry Glorikian. Welcome to The Harry Glorikian Show, the interview podcast that explores how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. Artificial intelligence, big data, predictive analytics. In fields like these, breakthroughs are happening much faster than most people realize. If you want to be proactive about your own healthcare and the healthcare of your loved ones, you'll need to learn some of these new tips and techniques of how medicine is changing and how you can take advantage of all the new options. Explaining this approaching world is the mission of the new book, The Future You. It's also our theme here on the show, where we bring you the conversations with innovators, caregivers, and patient advocates who are transforming the healthcare system and working to push it in positive directions. For most people, the genomic revolution still feels pretty distant, like something that's happening off in the ivory tower of big pharma companies or research universities. But say, heaven forbid, you get diagnosed with cancer next week. All of a sudden, you're going to want to get very familiar with that genetic information. Because thanks to the Human Genome Project and all of the tools for sequencing and analyzing genes, we know today that there are many different forms of cancer. And each one may respond to a different type of medicine. So before you and your doctor can decide what medicines work best for you, you really need to know which genes and mutations you carry and how they're expressed in your cells. Drug companies need similar data when they're testing new drugs. Because if they happen to test a drug on a population of people who happen to have the wrong genes to respond to that drug, they could wind up throwing away a medicine that would work perfectly well on people who have the right genes. The problem is that all of this gene sequencing and expression testing generates incredible amounts of data. And doctors and hospitals, and even big pharma companies, aren't always set up to understand or analyze that data. My guest this week is the CEO of a company that's helping with that problem. His name is Rafael Rosengarten. His company, Genialis, has built a software platform that organizes and analyzes data from high-throughput gene sequencing and RNA expression assays. We'll talk more about what all those terms mean, but what you need to know is that Genialis is one of the companies on the cutting edge of translating genetic data into actionable predictions. Those predictions are already helping biotech and pharma companies get drugs to market faster. And in the near future, they could help doctors funnel patients toward the right treatments. I wrote a whole chapter on this stuff in my new book, The Future You. So it was really fun to talk through it all with Raphael. Here's our conversation. Raphael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Harry. You know, for those listeners that don't have backgrounds in, say, computational biology or drug development, right, could you define a few terms that are probably going to come up later in our discussion? I mean, first, you know, maybe define next generation sequencing or this term we call NGS. What, what is next generation about? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Let me start by just kind of saying what genialis is with some jargon in the words, and then I'll define the jargon for you. So, <laughs> okay. so genialis is a, is a computational precision medicine company. So what that means is we're really interested in matching patients to therapies, right? And we use 
data about the molecular biology of patients' diseases to do that. And our favorite kind of data to work with come from next-generation sequencing. So next-generation sequencing, often abbreviated as NGS, although we've been doing that for 15 years now, we probably just need to call it this-generation sequencing, is, is a technology where you can uh, get the genetic information of the entire, say, genome or um, the transcriptome, that's the express, you know, which genes are expressed. And you get literally every base pair uh, off, of, off of a machine that reads the DNA or RNA from cells in our body. And with that information, you do some fancy computation. That, frankly, a lot of that's now fairly commoditized. And it kind of maps all of the individual bits of data into what we think we know about the human genome. And so you can say, okay, we've got this much of this gene and that much of this gene, or you can say, you know, gene A has certain mutations and gene B has other mutations. And so it allows you to ask whether, whether there are mutations or changes in the amount of certain molecules and so forth. But you get to do it for all the genes and not only all the genes, you can do it for, for all the space in between the genes in the genome. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because just the other day there was the announcement that we quote, actually finished the entire genome, which I thought was an interesting announcement. But uh, one more definition. So this term RNA-seq, right? So, you know, drawing the analogy of DNA and saying, okay, RNA is the next level. Uh, and why has that become so important now in drug discovery? That's a great question. So again, for your listeners who, who may not live and breathe this stuff, uh, there's a concept in, in biology called the central dogma, and, and it <laughs> kind of still holds. And the notion is that, that there are the, these different levels of organizations or different layers of the onion in peeling back the information that our cells use to, to conduct business. And the, the core of this is DNA, and that's our genetic information that's encoded you know, in our nucleus, and it's passed down from, from parents to children, it's the, the heritable information. And I apologize to all my friends who do live and breathe this, who are going to call, call shenanigans on my definition of being overly simplistic. Um, the next level is, as you described, is, is the RNA. And so RNA is actually a lot of things, but messenger RNAs are the, the uh, transcription of the genes. So the DNA genes that hold our genetic information are converted through a molecular process into another kind of molecule, and that kind of molecule is RNA. It's chemis chemically similar to DNA, but different. And that RNA uh, tend to be in smaller pieces than, than the whole chromosomes, and they represent you know, smaller pieces of genetic information. And they can vary widely from, say, one gene to the next in terms of how much RNA is made for that given gene. And then just to fill out the picture a bit more, in principle, then those RNA molecules get turned into uh, protein, or they, they are the specific instructions to create proteins, and proteins then go do the work of the cell. What I just told you is mostly wrong, but it's, it's sort of the framework that we think about. So the reason why RNA, the middle layer, is so interesting in sort of the drug discovery, and, and I'm going to add to that diagnostics world, um, is because it's a bit more, let's call it dynamic than the DNA level. So mutations sometimes are heritable and sometimes they arise de novo, but once they've arisen, they're kind of there and they go through, you know, from cell to cell uh, once the cells divide. And, and that's, you know, that's important and interesting and meaningful information. You can learn a lot about what genes are, you know, potentially druggable from that, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot about the state of 
tissue or the state of disease in this moment, right? It's, it's kind of background information in a way. And so RNA is a bit more dynamic. It changes. Um, it can change on, you know, really rapid timescales, but certainly therapeutically relevant timescales. And uh, so in some ways, it's a little bit closer to, to sort of what's happening now. Uh, it's also right. just a different, it's a different class of information because there are these, these abundances, different genes at different levels. Those yes. relative abundances have biological importance and sometimes therapeutic importance. A lot of cancers, for example, um, are, are bad for you. They, they are essentially misregulation of, of gene expression. So and they can arise from mutations or they can arise from, from other events at the DNA level, but it's understanding how much of some species of, of gene is being expressed in the RNA that can be informative or, or potentially therapeutically actionable. And I'm going to shout out to my proteomics friends, the guys who study proteins, that may be even more therapeutically relevant in a sense, because most of our drugs actually target proteins. And that's kind of the, the key of it, except for gene therapy, which is a big deal, especially in the CRISPR era. We're not often targeting DNA with our drugs, right? Mostly right. we're targeting proteins and occasionally we're targeting RNAs and less frequently we're targeting DNAs. Um, again, all CRISPR bets aside, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we did a we did a uh, an episode talking about CRISPR, and it you know amazing uh, advancements happening there. But now, you know, being from applied biosystems, I mean, I remember an entire room full of sequencers where we, you know, I think there were like six or eight hundred we had running twenty four hours a day at one point. Now I can do that on a desktop, right? Um, but there's a lot of data that comes off that. That's a challenge, I think, for people in drug development to manage that much data. So, how do, I, I mean, you you did you started at Baylor with a lot of your research. How did how did you personally encounter these challenges in your research? I mean, it was very much this challenge that inspired us to start Genialis, right? So the the conception story of Genialis is my co-founders and I. We we really wanted to be able to do advanced cutting edge data science, like machine learning, AI type stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, in order to, to really bring kind of the next level of, of analytics to bear on biomedical problems. And what we realized is that's all well and good, but you can't do any of that stuff unless you get the data in a place where you can work on it. And you know, I remember going to talk to one of the top researchers at all of Baylor College of Medicine. I mean, this, this person is you know, top of her field chair of department, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked her, I was like, you know, how, how does your lab deal with, you know, your data retention and your data management and your data analysis? And she said, I'm glad you asked. This is such a big problem. Um, we just had, you know, one of our, one of our postdocs leave and he took his little thumb drives with him and all of the data from all of his stuff was on those thumb drives. And now we, we can't reanalyze. I was like, you're, you're kidding me. Uh, and she said, so we had to go and re-download some of it that he had published and put on an online. So, so, you know, even top researchers, you know, didn't have a clue how to do this. And this wasn't that long ago. I would say that drug companies by now are mostly more savvy. And certainly, you know, the, the commercial sector for data management tools is, you know, thriving, right? There are some really good commercial products. Um, Genialis has one. There's some, some others of note. Um, and, and big pharma has invested a lot, obviously, in building in-house solutions. But this creates another kind of complication, which is you get all these different solutions and 
They don't right. all talk to each other. Um, even having data on different clouds, right? Some people may use Amazon, others Google, and others still Microsoft. And, and you know, those are the three majors. Um, you know, those create silos in a way. So, so you know, the cloud has been super helpful. Um, the advent of software purposely built for, you know, biological data management has been helpful. But, you know, there's still a lot of work to do. And I'm going to argue that the kind of next, let's not call it a frontier, but the next big challenge and the one that we encounter a lot, it's not even around the primary data. We, we're good now. We're good at sucking that off the machines and putting it in the cloud and organizing it and getting it processed really efficiently, you know, using distributed computation. Now the challenge is getting what we call the metadata, the annotations of where those data come from. You know, are, is it coming from patients? And if so, what, what's the patient information associated right. with it? Is it an experiment? Getting those metadata consistently curated and attached and linked to the primary data um, is, is a big and very important challenge. And, and it's one that I think will be solved in a similar way through these software solutions. Um, but, it, but it takes a lot of will and a lot of you know, manual effort at this point. Just to summarize, right? So you, the software that you have is helping biologists and clinicians work with data without necessarily having to become a bioinformatician, is it, if I had to frame it that way. Is that a decent representation? That, that is. That's one of the softwares we have. So the, you're referencing Genialis Expressions, which was kind of our, our initial um, you know, flagstone software. Uh, I'm excited, though, in, in November at Biodata Basel, uh, we launched our new software, our newest product, which is called Responder ID. And this is where, you know, our dreams of, of really applying machine learning and AI to these data have, have finally come to fruition. Responder ID is a software, or really it's a suite of technologies that we use on those, those clinical data and on those experimental data um, to actually extract knowledge and very specifically to figure out which patients are most likely to respond to certain therapies. And so, the first piece of software is really the kind of about the data management. It's about right. you know getting data organized, getting it processed, you know kind of all the best practices and, and efficiencies around that. Um, and that was sort of you know I don't want to call it last year's problem because it's still a problem, but it was the first thing we did. It's where we started, and right. it's got some beautiful visualizations, and it does let bench scientists like myself um, you know work with their own data. Uh, but but the new stuff is is where we're really bringing the application to bear on on human health and on value propositions that I think really resonate with with um, pharma diagnostics and other biotech and and frankly clinicians and and ultimately patients. So, well, that's great. I mean, that transition to the new software, I, I must have missed that in when I was doing my research. I, I hadn't seen that yet, but. Um, what are some of the stories or anecdotes uh, for by customers that you can share that what have they been able to say accomplish with it so that we can put it into context for the listener? Yeah, so you know most of our our customers are um, you know biotech drug companies, and right. you know we, we help them solve a number a number of problems. Um, but the key challenge, is that drug development is just an incredibly risky and expensive and time-consuming proposition. Most of our work's in the oncology space, not all of it, but it's a good, it's a good place to make this example. The, the success rate of a drug that enters a, a phase one clinical trial in, in the cancer space 
that actually makes it to market is something like three or 4%. It's dismal. Right. And it's among the lowest of any therapeutic area. Um, and there are any number of reasons for that. But the, the sim most simplistic one is that um, biology is complicated and patients are diverse, right? right. Um, even within a single disease, like let's just say breast cancer, there are at least four kinds of breast cancer. There are probably 40 kinds. And there are actually probably more than that. Each individual's disease is going to have its own unique flavors. And so what we allow a company to do, let's say a company that's developing a drug against, for example, breast cancer, is to really try to understand how many molecular types are we talking about, which ones are going to respond to our drug, and can we find those patients ahead of time? And what that lets them do is think about uh, alternative and sort of novel and um, innovative strategies for designing clinical trials. Um, it allows them, if they so desire, to think about partnering out uh, on diagnostic development um, with third parties to actually create a diagnostic to go with their drug. That's not obviously necessary. You can, you can build assays that you run in-house, but, but that's an alternative. And to make it very concrete, we have one partner we work with a lot, um, a company called Angserna Therapeutics. And with them, we've helped develop their, their um, first biomarker as part of their biomarker platform to the point not only of clinical trial assay, but also it's been licensed by Kyogen to be turned into a companion diagnostic for their lead drug and a research use only assay for scientists writ large around the world. And so, you know, this is a great success story. In, in about the course of two years, we went from taking, you know, published academic signature, you know, something in the literature. And, and by the way, there are about a million of these public academic signatures, and there are only 46 approved companion diagnostics. So there's a big gulf between them right? We went from an academic signature and this was hand in glove work with them. So I don't want to take all the credit, but we certainly did a lot of the, the heavy lifting. And we built a category defining first of its class machine learning algorithm that learned a complex RNA sequencing based signature that predicts with uncanny ability patients that are going to respond to a wide array of drugs in a wide array of diseases. So it's pan-cancer, multimodality, right? This is just, it's an astonishing um, clinical advance, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, it's something I'm clearly very proud of and willing to self-promote. Um, but I do think it's an important advance. And, and I think it shows um, the power of both kind of the genealogy philosophy around modeling biology and, you know, pairing patient biology with, with potential therapeutics, but also just what you can do if you're really thoughtful about getting the data in the right place, treating the data properly, and then using machine learning and, and some of these advanced algorithms to decipher. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I, it's, I, I think we're starting to get to that cusp of producing the data is getting faster, uh, more cost effective. I mean, if Illumina actually gets down to, I think they, you know, last JP Morgan, they said, we're trying to get it down to $60, right. For whole genome. Um, but at some point you're getting to numbers that are, I don't want to say rounding error, but damn near close to that. And so the the burden's going to fall on how, how do I interpret all this data and what what do I do next, right? What's actionable? I mean, I think the the treating doctors like this is all great, uh great data. Tell me what to do, right? And it sounds like your new suite of software might be more applicable for a clinician or to to be communicated to a clinician than just on the research side. So is is Genialis now moving beyond its original 
set of customers and moving more towards the clinical space? I certainly think that's, you know, that's on the horizon. That's something that we're, we're contemplating. You know, the, the U.S. health system is, is, well, systems, plural, is, is a complicated beast, right? And so there, there are certainly um, co- big companies that, that have products that are there for drug companies and products that are there for patients and products that are there for providers and so forth. Um, and, and that makes sense. I think once you've got a, a wide enough kind of horizontal, you can stack all these verticals on top of each other. Um, you know, inshallah, we get big enough to do that ourselves. Um, but, you know, for the time being, we found this really, uh, you know, this really great motion and, and success story working around certain therapeutic modalities or certain therapeutic opportunities. I actually think what may be the bigger prize is to take what we learn about disease biology from some of these, these you know, diagnostic models and turn them on their head and say, okay, we've shown this model really captures patient biology. And it works, and we know that because, look, there are patients, and they respond to the drug that we predicted they would. Like we've fit, we've definitely cracked something there. Now let's take what we've learned about that patient biology and interrogate this model for new therapeutic opportunities. What about all the patients who don't respond to this drug? What will they respond to? The model still has them pegged as non-responders. The model understands their biology. We just need to interrogate it for the next generation of therapies. And so I think this is where my vision of precision medicine maybe deviates. Diagnostics is, a, is an industry. Drug discovery, you know, drug companies are an industry. Those are separate companies. Those yeah. are separate industries. But to me, precision medicine shouldn't be this kind of linear thing where you start with a target and you end up with a drug and a diagnostic and that's where it ends. It should be a circle. It should wrap around. And what we learn from patients should feed right into the next round of drug discovery, Right. And so I'm interested in playing at that sort of um, fusion point where the, where the ends of the string meet and form a circle. And so, you know, we're really interested in, in partnering and, and learning more about, for example, AI for, for you know, ma- discovering new drugs to match with the targets, right? And so I kind of see that as where a lot of genealysis future focus is going to go. Um, I'm not ruling out patient reporting software. I'm not ruling out more clinical products. You know, that would be logical. Um, but my real interest is thinking about, you know, helping the patients who just don't have therapeutic options today. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's to make it easier for other listeners to discover the show by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show, and scroll down to the Ratings and Reviews section. Tap the stars to rate the show, and then tap the link that says Write a Review to leave your comments. It'll only take a minute, but you'll be doing me a huge favor. And also one more thing. If you enjoy hearing from the kinds of innovators and entrepreneurs I talk to on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create more personalized diets and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is out in print and ebook format 
from Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Just go to either site and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. Thanks, and now back to the show. When I think about this and where we're going with this, and, and, and the, I, I hate saying it, but the, but the old dogmatic way of looking at it is very compartmentalized, is we look at it in discrete pieces. Yeah? And these data analytics platforms allow us to look a multifactorial or almost turn the data into a living organism where we can look at it in multiple ways. And I think it's hard for people to get there mentally. Um, I mean, sometimes, sometimes when I'm looking at something, I, I'm, you know, I realize that my limitation is the information that I have about a particular area and that I need to learn something new to put another piece of the puzzle together. But I think this, let me do this and then let me do this and then let me do this. That's breaking down because of the data analytic capabilities that we're bringing to bear and the you know, applying AI machine learning or in reality, sometimes just hard math to solve certain problems uh, is opening up a, a wider aperture of how we would manage a patient and then treat them appropriately. And I think, hell, I, I, I don't know, Rafael, I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried. I don't think the system is necessarily <laughs> designed to absorb that next gen opportunity, right? Because somebody will be like, okay, where do I get the information? Does that go in the EMR? I mean, wait, where is there a code that I can bill for it? I mean, there's these arcane roadblocks that are in the way that have nothing to do with, I've got this model and I'm telling you this will work on this patient, right? Yeah, I don't know that I'm smart enough to know the solution to that. I, I will say that there are some really exciting you know, newish, you know, young venture back upstarts that are interested in disrupting hospital systems, point of care, EHO, like all of that is fair game, right? It's, it's, yep. it is, as you described, it's just right for disruption because it, it's so, right. you know, it's so um, cobbled together, right? And, you know, I, I'm thinking about when, when my wife and I moved from Houston, Texas to the Bay Area. And, and then we got pregnant with our second child. You know, we wanted to have all of our medical records from pregnancy number one sent from Texas Medical Center, which is, you know, one of the, the sort of shining jewels of, of healthcare institutions to John Muir Health System in, in the Bay Area, which is, um, they were, they, listen, they were changing out the wood panels from the 1970s during all of our doctor's visits there, right? <laughs> and, and literally, we, we asked the doctor if he could just like print, print something for us. He said, no, I, I can't do that, but I could, I could write it down on a sheet of paper for you. Like it, you know, it's, but that's, that's, you know, I agree with you. There are going to have to be changes top down, bottom up, and there's going to have to be hopefully support for this in, in the regulatory bodies, you know, at the governmental level. Um, where I live and breathe though is, is really kind of in the life sciences sector of the healthcare system. So right. again, we're interested in, in drug development. We're interested in diagnostics. We're interested in drug discovery. Um, and those themselves are kind of big things. So where I think about changes and regulatory and, and systemic stuff is more along like how is, you know, what is the FDA doing to, to adopt or adapt to these kind of new technologies? Um, what about standards, right? Like how are we thinking right. about data standards, model standards? 
Um, I'm a, the uh, Genialis is a founding member of, and I'm on the board of directors of the Alliance for AI and Healthcare. And this is a, a really exciting and, and rather amazing industry organization. Um, it was stood up at JP Morgan in 2019. And, you know, we've got, gosh, I don't know what the head count, the member number now is, but over 50 member organizations, including the likes of, you know, Google and, and Roche and big, bigs like that. Some of the more um, household names in, in the smaller biotech uh, community, like Recursion Pharma and Silica Medicine, um, Valo Health, et cetera. And then, and then companies like Genialis as well, big academic centers. So we have a real great, a brain trust and, we're interested in tackling, I'm going to call them these hard, boring, but incredibly important systemic questions around regulatory and standards and so forth. Health insurance, Medicare, all that stuff is, is a big fish. And, and we haven't, you know, we haven't set our hooks in it yet. But, um, you know, how, how hospitals bill and, and those kinds of codes, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to revisit that at some point for sure. Yeah, I, I know that you're a, you're a member there and, and sort of interesting to hear like why you got involved and how you see it working. So if you think about the standardization side of this, you know, what is, what is the organization sort of advocating for? Cause I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's, but, but at some point I think you almost need to reach back towards how is somebody doing an experiment to make sure that then the data comes out the other side in a standard way. Right. Because I used to joke, right. Which, which sample prep product are you working with? And I could tell you sort of what direction something is going to lean. And, and that, that in and of itself is, has a problem. So how is AAIH sort of thinking about some of these problems? And I don't know, if there's a proposal, what, do, what, what have you guys proposed so far? That's a great question. So, so we have work streams around things like, um, you know, the FDA, you're working with the FDA to, to propose guidance for good machine learning practice, guidance for software as a medical device, AI as part of software as a medical device. So a lot of this, is, it's less concerned with, can we rein in and constrain, um, you know, the experimental part? Because again, that's, that's a, a huge world and, and, and maybe it's, it's not really where the constraints need to be, but rather, can we come up with a common set of guidelines for how you evaluate the quality of a data set? Right. Okay. Recognizing the data are going to come in a lot of shapes and, and sizes and flavors, and even two different RNA sequencing data sets that are produced on different machines or with different kits may, you know, may have slightly different flavors or tints to them. That's fine so long as you have some guidelines for um, characterizing those differences, for appreciating those differences, and then for knowing what to do with the data given those potential differences. Right. Um, a lot of the concern around you know, AI in a regulate, regulated setting is that you know, the whole promise of a machine learning approach is that it gets smarter the more data it sees, right? So these, should be, these algorithms should evolve. Um, you know, in a way, they should be living and breathing. But if yeah. you have a, re a regulated product that has to work on patients, it's got to work the same every time, right? or it <laughs> yeah. you know, can't get worse. So so this is there's a tension here, but it's not it's not unsolvable. It's not insurmountable. For example, you know, a, a regulated AI doesn't have to evolve in real time. It can be updated over time, right? Yeah. And it can be it can be locked and then operate, and then you can improve it and update it and redeploy and relock. So building the plans, what what are the change plans? How do you demonstrate that 
that the retraining or the improvements are actually improvements. These are the kinds of things that, that at least we can sink our teeth into today. Um, and then we're also interested in the standards problem. Um, I think the organization is not necessarily going to be dogmatic about recommending exactly what those standards are today, but we're, we're trying to catalyze those discussions, right? And we're trying to create frameworks where those discussions can actually lead to some actionable you know, tools. And, and there are examples of organizations that have done this in other fields. So, so we do have some blueprints, um, but it, it's a lot of work. And frankly, that's the privilege of being a, in the organization is it gives you the opportunity to roll up your sleeves and, and build the industry of the future, to build the industry you want to operate in. Yeah, I mean, and this has got to be in lockstep with the regulatory authorities and everything to to make sure that everything is, you know, everybody's on the same page so that when you're, you come up with a golden solution, they're ready to accept it, right? Because we can't have, you know, you download the latest software for your phone and then it bricks, right? We can't, that, that's not an acceptable update that you can do, right? And somebody has to release a patch to get it to fix. And, you know, that's that doesn't necessarily, I'm sure it happens in our world, but it's really not what you'd like to see happen. Yeah, but, you know, I can tell you from having having had to invest in, in a lot of the kind of um, procedures around clinical reporting in software and so forth, and, you know, working with some really top tier um, you know, point of care software providers. Um, it's not foolproof, but boy, there are a lot of hoops to jump through, right? Like things do get tested <laughs> a whole oh, lot. Yeah. And, yeah. and I would just, I would, I would argue, although, you know, let me not be, be overly you know, full of hubris that there are plenty of other fail points that are a lot more likely to fail than, you know, the AI software that's predicting, you know, a biomarker um, not working in a particular instance, right? Given the room for error in things like biopsy collection and, you know, human handling of sand. You know, there's a lot of stuff upstream of that where, where human error is more likely to play a part. Um, that, that may or may not be sweet solids, right? Like that might not help you sleep at night, but, but I think that the, regu the regulated environment, especially around com regulating computational tools can be rather bulletproof. So is there anything else going on at, uh, at, at Genialis that, that, we would want to know about that uh, and directionally or, or what's next that you can. Uh... Yeah. I mean, the exciting stuff is, is really twofold. It's, it's, you know, just going deeper with our, our partners, right? So clinical development, as I mentioned, is a, is a long game. And, yeah. you know, we, we like to start working before with you before the drugs in the clinic, right? So that this is, these are meant to be uh, long partnerships, right? And, the, the other piece of this is we're doing a lot more internal R&D, right? A lot right. more internal R&D, a lot more work with our, our academic colleagues. And so we're really, really excited to just, you know, to innovate our way out of some of these hard problems. Well, that's necessary in this field, right? You're always going to run into some, I like to call them speed bumps because I don't believe that they're like insurmountable problems, but... There are speed bumps that you need to like innovate, or, you know, over or around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I want to give you something meaty, uh, like, you know, what to look for from GL. So, you know, sometime soon, my hope, knock on wood, is that we'll have first patients enrolled in, in clinical trials that are, you know, the, the biomarker I described to you earlier, 
Um, this yep. is on Cerna trial. Your first patient rolled, that's going to be super exciting. Um, you know, it's a, it's a phase three uh, trial and, and we're going to be stratifying patients with the biomarker. I mean, just the gratification of actually having our technology, you know, potentially impacting, impacting outcomes is, is huge. Um, we've got a lot up our sleeves in terms of internal development improvements to Responder ID, but also, you know, uh, some, some biomarker work we're kind of doing for ourselves, you know, digging deeper into some pernicious problems in cancer that others haven't, haven't adequately addressed, in my opinion. Um, you know, and, and some, some exciting partnerships, hopefully around kind of, we'll call them data partnerships, right? We, we talked a bit about just the scale of the data. The right. challenge though, is it lives all over the place, right? And so, you know, there are, there are different ways of getting your hands on it. And one of the ways a lot of companies have gone about it is to become the testing companies, right? There are some giants out there that sequence literally millions of patients a year, and they've got big data warehouses. Um, right. We haven't done that ourselves. Um, and so we rely on, on collaborations for a lot of our data, not all of it, um, but we're, we're building some of these collaborations and I'm hoping we can talk more about that, you know, in future episodes or, or in other forums. Just for a second, so people understand the magnitude, the, you, this phase three trial, how many, how many patients would you say are in, you know? Right, I need to be super careful not to misrepresent someone else's trial. And it, it's going to be on the order of, of several hundred. Um, you know, it's a properly powered phase three um, and it's got, you know, two treatment arms. Um, and so, you know, it has to have quite a number of patients. And, and that's, you know, I would say that's a typical size trial of for, for this stage in this kind of disease. Yeah, I just want people listening to sort of get an idea of like these technologies are, you know, can affect, you know, lots of people. And then if that drug comes through and then the technology is utilized afterwards to sort of substratify people or the biomarker mm -hmm. is then there's an even larger population of people that then gets affected by the work that you guys are doing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, in a way, um, you know, our commitment to this sort of biomarker driven, you know, drug development, it, it's very principled. It's, it's based on this idea that, you know, patients deserve to have the best treatment option. Right. And there are some amazing drugs out there that when they work, work miracles, but they don't work yes. that often. Right. And some of these drugs have, you know, first line approvals in dozens of diseases. But again, in some of those diseases, they work for half the patients and that's great. And that's probably how it should be. But in some, they only work in maybe 15% of the patients or 20 or whatever the, the threshold is because they were better than the alternative. Right. But if you could tell which of those patients are going to respond, then at least the ones who aren't can seek other options, or you know that we've got to develop drugs for the, the others. So it's it's very principled, although it's complicated, because from an economic standpoint, if you have the ability to sell your drug to everybody, of course, you're going to do that. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I drank that Kool-Aid, I mean, Jesus, I, 20 years ago, right? I mean, you know, why wouldn't you want, I mean, if you were a patient, you'd want the best drug you can get, right? Because the data says that you you'll respond to this particular drug. It's getting the system to that point. And I have seen, I've had stories where, you know, the data said one thing, they put the patient on it, they look like they were responding, a new trial opened up. And somebody suggested that they go on the new trial, even though the therapy was working and they switched and the outcome was not positive, right? And so it's 
one of those things of like, I don't understand the the data clearly pointed in a particular direction and you deviated from that. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, mm -hmm. as, as a, you know, science person as, as well as an investor, if the data is showing something, you better respond to the data or you're not going to be happy with the outcome. Um, it's just seeing that implemented in a way that makes it very actionable for everybody. And they are, they embrace that. Um, that's where I, sometimes I find, you know, the biggest problems, but I totally agree. I mean, I have a whole chapter in my new book about that whole dynamic of why you want the data, how the data impacts you as a patient, what are the sort of questions you should ask, et cetera, because if you don't have that information, you're making suboptimal decisions. Yeah. No, and, and that's absolutely right. I think the point you make there is, is probably the, the key one, which is a lot of biotechs and companies like ours, you know, we operate with kind of a worldview of our own research and our customers. But we have to remember that the reason we do this, the reason we get up every day and the reason we toil is it's because we can impact patient lives. And if you actually want to, to really foment that change, they, that subset, that stakeholder needs to be involved, right? A patient needs to understand what are my choices? And so if, if a patient comes into the clinic and has a grave illness and the doctor says, well, this is the approved drug, but there's a test that could tell you if there's something else. I mean, if I'm the patient, I want to take that test. I want to know what my options are, right? And, and I think that, frankly, it's unrealistic to expect publicly traded companies to not try to maximize revenue. That's just kind of the, the system we live in. But it's, you know, it's also incumbent upon us to, to engage patients, to help them understand what their options are, to engage physicians the same, and to say, yeah, like that's the, there are multiple proof drugs maybe, or this is the one, but there are some, you know, there are some investigational drugs that haven't been approved yet that may be better fits for your disease. Remember your disease isn't necessarily the same right. as someone else who happens to have it in the same tissue. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's a, a big deal. And I, I do think that there are any number of, of exciting organizations that are really focused, you know, doggedly focused on this point of patient engagement and especially patient engagement around, around data. No, I mean, I always, I tell every one of my guests, hurry up, go faster because I'm not getting any younger. And theoretically, like, you know, statistically I could end up in that place. I want the best that I can get when I get there. So, um, Raphael, I know it's getting late where you are. So really appreciate your time. Um, and the opportunity to talk about, you know, what you guys are doing and the impact that it's having on not just drug development, but downstream on, on patients. Well, thank you, Harry, for having me and giving me the opportunity. This has been, been a lot of fun to connect over this. Excellent. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. You can find past episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and The Moneyball Medicine Show at my website, glorikian.com, under the tab, Podcasts. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts to leave a rating and review for the show. You can also find me on Twitter at hglorikian, and we always love it when listeners post about the show there or on other social media. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.